Well, I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We are going to be looking this morning specifically at verses 1 through 8, a passage that is familiar to most of us, so let me begin by reading that passage. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then verses 9 and 10, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Well, Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would quiet our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would give us an attentiveness to your word. And Lord, that always as we come face to face with the eternal truths of Scripture, that you would change us, that you would help us to be more conformed to the image of Christ, Lord, that you would minister to our souls, that you would uplift us with the truth of your word, that we might bring you glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. On Veterans Day, November 11th, 1963, President John F. Kennedy visited Arlington National Cemetery to pay his respects to America's fallen war heroes. And ominously, he said this, This cemetery is so beautiful, I could stay here forever. Two weeks later, he returned in his flag-draped casket to be buried in that very place. And Kennedy's favorite Bible passage was Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, which begins, There's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. For those of us who are older, we might remember that also in 1963, the nation was singing the same ancient passage of Scripture to a very contemporary beat. Folk singer Pete Seeger adapted the words of Scripture to his song, Turn, 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 which was sung by the birds. And it's not the birds in the trees. It's the birds with guitars. It sailed to the top of the charts but the question we must ask this morning is, what is it about Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that captivated the attention of a young president, a famous folk singer, and millions of others who have meditated on this very powerful piece of literature? I think, beloved, it's one of the most philosophical and contemplative passages in all of Scripture. And I believe the reason that it is so popular is twofold. First of all, man has always had a relationship with time, which is both fascinating and frustrating, especially when it comes to our inability to control the various times and seasons of our life. First is the frustrating reality that in this mortal life, we have no control over time. Time is something we cannot keep. Time is something we cannot save. Time is something that we must all spend, and no one has any more of it or less of it than anyone else. We can manage our time, we can schedule our time, we can waste our time, but we are never really in control of our time. And this is an immediate nuisance to those who want to be in control. 
But the reality of it is we all realize, and sometimes it's very unsettling to us, we are not in control of time. Second, along with that, is the fascination that in spite of all of our efforts, we cannot control the events and the circumstances that come into our lives over time. There is triumph, there is tragedy, there is gain, there is loss, there is peace, war, there is laughing and weeping. And by nature, man is often very discomforted by what appears to be the randomness of life. Man does what he can, but eventually time will catch up with him, bringing both good and adversity. We also know that ultimately death will catch up with him, and there's nothing that man can do about any of those things. Well, this is the issue, beloved, that Solomon deals with in, as I said, what is without a doubt the most notable passage of Scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is really the next step in Solomon's unfolding logic about futility of living life under the sun. Remember that as Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he had a quest to find the true meaning and purpose of life. And you remember that Solomon, being the richest man who ever lived and being a king where nothing could be denied him, tried everything to find out what the purpose of life is, what would ultimately bring man happiness. And we're told in the first two chapters that he tried wealth, and that didn't work. He tried his own wisdom, and that didn't work. He tried wild living, that certainly didn't work. And he tried work, and that didn't work as well. And he came to the conclusion that all was vanity and there was no profit under the sun. And yet in chapter 2, we see that Solomon gives us the first ray of godly wisdom when he noted that a man's labor is good. Why? Because it comes from the hand of God. And therefore Solomon turns again to consider man's time on earth. What is it about the time we have here that we need to understand? You know, we often wonder about our place in the vast scheme of things. How many of you have ever been in a circumstance where you had no clue what God was doing? Anybody? Wow, there you go. Every hand goes up, right? And sometimes we wonder, I don't know what's going on. Is there really a vast scheme of things? I mean, does this all make sense? I think this is a very good fundamental question for us to ask. Because you see, on our own, beloved, we are unable to make sense of the jigsaw puzzle of life. And doesn't it often appear in our lives that there are pieces missing, right? Amen? We don't always get it. What's missing? And then we read a passage like this, and it seems to add to our own sense of helplessness, or it seems to add to the sense that, well, maybe life is more random than I thought. I mean, every second of every day, is it really not true that some of these things that come into my life, some of these things that happen, are just not random? And it can cause a great sense of negativity. But let me say this. While many see negativity in this passage, the fact is, is that Solomon is presenting something that's just the opposite. You see, He's telling us that when we keep God in the picture, we see that God is sovereign over time and that God is in control of every event and every circumstance under the sun. And that includes, listen carefully, both the positive and the negative experiences of life. 
But just as important, and this is what we often miss in a passage like this, just as important is the fact that these verses give us a complete picture of God. They give us a full, balanced view of God's character, and that helps us to better understand our place in the world and why things are the way that they are. And we see indeed that God has a time for every purpose. So from this poem, I think there are three observations about our time under heaven that we can make. And we're going to see that God makes a time for every purpose under heaven because at the right time, everything that we read in this poem is in keeping with the very character of God. So let's begin with our first observation. Observation number one. The first thing we see is this, that this poem magnifies the doctrines of God's sovereignty and his predestination of human events. It magnifies the doctrines of God's sovereignty and his predestination of human events. Now, having read the poem, I want to get us familiar with this poem in general. The poem that you see recorded in verses 1 through 8 is comprised of 14 couplets and 28 statements. And together, these couplets make up a parallel series of related opposites. And each pair forms what we call a merism. Okay, a merism is a figure of speech in which two polarities make up a whole. So, for example, when we hear a phrase like young and old alike, or rich and poor, these are merisms. They're contrasting words used to express totality or completeness. So, for example, when the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, it means that God created the entire universe. Similarly, each of the pairs in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, makes up a larger whole. So together, birth and death comprise the whole of human existence. Weeping and laughing summarize the full range of human emotion. A time to be silent, a time to speak, encompasses the sum total of how we communicate. And what I want you to see here is immediately we see the scope of God's sovereignty emphasized. That God, listen, ordains a whole range of human experience and existence. Nothing is left out. And this is the point of Solomon's introduction in verse 1. And you'll notice there that he says, there is an appointed time for everything. And then he says, and there is a time for every event, notice the words, under heaven. Now what strikes me as odd here is this, after everything else Solomon has said about the vanity and futility of life under the sun, this phrase under heaven seems a little bit out of place. I mean, we might have expected Solomon to say something more discouraging about time, such as, well, time is short, or we never have enough time, or time is fleeting, or when time is gone, it can't be recovered. It seems like that would be more in line with what Solomon has previously stated. But instead, listen, Solomon writes a poem about the orderliness of every time that God has ordained, and that is what is summarized in verse 1. And yet for many scholars, this is an inherent problem and it causes them to see this poem as totally pessimistic. Many scholars have said, you know what this is? This poem here is a God problem. 
And this is what they mean. Solomon, it seems, writes as one who is just simply trapped in the tyranny of time to the point that he becomes fatalistic about his existence. Uh, There's a time for this, there's a time for that, but no matter what time it is, there's nothing any of us can do about it. So what does it matter? Many say the God of Ecclesiastes 3 is an absolute and arbitrary master. One commentator wrote this, Solomon feels imprisoned by the sequence of times and he rebels because this is what he must go through without knowing why. You see, part of the difficulty for these scholars is their discomfort with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And rather than finding encouragement in God's governance of time and his predestination of all human events, they simply see God as this random deity. He's up there doing something, but it sure doesn't seem like he's doing anything down here. For example, the Abington Bible Commentary assigned the following title to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Hopelessness of struggle against an arbitrary God. Yikes. But is this really the perspective that Ecclesiastes gives us about the God of time? Is this just a, a random nothing? Absolutely not. Remember what we read from chapter 2 that I told you it ended with a declaration of the enjoyment we find whenever God is present and we receive life's blessings as a gift from Him. Now if we turn forward to Ecclesiastes 3.11, we get a strong affirmation of God's timeliness in ordering human events. Notice there he says, He has made everything, and I love the word beautiful in its time. Let that roll off your tongue. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Far from being a fatalist, Solomon has come to the proper appreciation of the sovereignty of God over both time and eternity. And Solomon wants us to recognize that behind all of life is God's overarching purposes. Life is not uniformly bad, but it does include both positive and negative experiences. And why is this important for us to to see this? Because the beautiful balance in this poem teaches us important truths about God, about His Son, and about our stewardship of time. So let's connect some dots here. A biblical understanding of time and its place in the Christian worldview must begin with our understanding of the sovereignty of God. And although God is not mentioned by name in these first eight verses, He is mentioned in the verses that follow. And the opening verse, notice, talks about what happens under heaven. And this tells us immediately that everything that happens in a time-bound universe is under the authority of God who rules in heaven. Praise the Lord for that. And beloved, this helps us to see, listen, and this is what we miss, that we exist for a purpose greater than ourselves. All right, the greatest significance of our lives is not in us. It is our existence in Christ. Amen? That's the significance of our lives. God is in the process of doing something greater for His glory than in the limited transient circumstances of our life. 
And that does not mean that God doesn't love you or care about the circumstances of your life. But God is doing something much bigger than what you and I see. Because you and I are time-bound, amen? We can't see tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And so we often forget this. And we forget that even though we are in the midst maybe of a difficulty, that God is in all of our circumstances. God is sovereign over time and whatever happens in time. There is an appointed time for everything in our life. Nothing happens outside the will of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, His holy, wise, and powerful providence governs all his creatures and, notice this, all their actions. Again, the comprehensiveness of this poem literally magnifies the sovereignty of God. Philip Ryken says this, he says, This is twice the biblical number, that is seven, of perfection and completion. Not surprisingly, the pairs themselves seem to take in the whole sweep of human experience from birth to death, from war to peace, which is where the poem ends and everything in between. So this is what I want you to see, that God does indeed regulate, listen, all of our moments and all of our days. Furthermore, I want you to see there's a definite orderliness to the way that God does things. God is not random. He's precise. He puts everything in its own place in time. God's sovereignty has a chronology. We see this from the very beginning when God divided the days of creation. We see it with every change of season that he turns the summer into autumn and and that springtime comes after winter. And in Ecclesiastes 3, we see the same order applied to human activities and to relationships. There is a season in life for everything. But we shouldn't see this as random. Now a season, as it's used here, means a fixed time, a predetermined purpose. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for season is the word keras, which is time viewed as an opportunity. That's what he's saying here. Time, look at time as an opportunity, not as time measured in duration. It's important that we understand the distinction here. This is the time that God has opportunity. And this means that according to God's divine timetable, there is a suitable season, an appropriate opportunity, a predetermined purpose for everything that happens to us. And this perspective is far from fatalistic, wouldn't you say? Solomon is not saying that God is arbitrary and that there's nothing we can do about whatever happens. But what he is saying is that in all things, God is fashioning a purpose and a plan for us. Ralph Wardlaw intuitively writes this, The wise and regular and orderly administration of one who sees the end from the beginning and to whom there is no unanticipated contingency and whose omniscient eye in the midst of what appears to us inextricable confusion, has a thorough and intuitive perception of the endlessly diversified relations and tendencies of all events and all their circumstances, discerning throughout the whole the perfection of harmony. How many of you get that? Okay, I had to read that like three times. 
okay, to think about what this guy was saying. But it does make sense once you get it. So what he's saying here in short is that God does everything for a purpose just at the right time. The problem we have is we don't always understand things, do we? We see life as a jigsaw puzzle. We see we come into these areas of life where there are pieces that seem to be missing. But there are no missing pieces in the jigsaw puzzle of life, not from God's perspective. So having seen how this poem magnifies the doctrines of God's sovereignty and his predestination of human events, we can now expand our understanding of this poem with a second observation, and it's this. That this poem maintains that God is not either or, he is both and. God is not either or, he is both and. Now you may be wondering why by now I have not taken you down this laundry list of couplets and explained each one to you in more detail. And the answer to that is pretty straightforward because to do so without seeing that these these things are ultimately attributed to God's will would be very misleading. Usually when people read this passage of Scripture, which I'm sure most of you have read, they see in these couplets only the things that people do. And, of course, these are things people do. People give birth, people plant, people build up, people embrace, people love, people make war. What we fail to see is that this poem is not limited, beloved, to the human level because the activities that are listed are also the things which God does. I want you to see the verbs in our text are divine actions before they become human activities. This is what God dictated to the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, God said, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The sovereign God who gives order to time is is not a one-dimensional God. Every activity in this poem has its opposite, and together both of them tell us what God is doing in the world. Consider birth and death. These are the two most momentous experiences in life, two appointments which every person must keep. Both we know the cradle and the deathbed follow God's timetable. Hospitals bring us face to face with this reality. It's not a long walk between the nursery and the morgue. But the point is this, look, God brings life into the world. Praise the Lord. David praised God saying, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. But then God also appoints death. We read in Job 14.5 that a man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. The initiation, the initiation, duration, determination of our existence is all under the authority of God. This is the same truth we find of planting and harvesting. Look at the end of verse 2. There's a time to plant, a time to uproot. In the Old Testament, these verbs describe God's relationship with his people. God planted his people, remember, as a fruitful vineyard. But when they rebelled against him, we read that God dug up the vine, sending his people into captivity. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 5 reads this, So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. 
So we see that God is involved in both planting and in uprooting. In a similar way, there's a time for tearing down and building up. God broke the Tower of Babel. He built up a house for Israel in the kingdom of David. The complete work of God involves both creation and demolition. And this doesn't sit well with most people, does it? Many of us prefer a one-dimensional deity. They like to think of God as giving life but not death. Of God building but not tearing down. Of God bringing peace but not war. But listen, we must consider the, the whole character of God. Part of God's perfection, beloved, is in his sovereign dealing with the human race. In the fact that he ordains a time for all of these things. And listen, he deems all of these things necessary. In Moses' day, God said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So I'd like to tell Joel Osteen that God is more than just a God of love. I don't like to mention names, though. Right? God is the fullness of his character. Goes both ways. Applied to the text, we see that God is not either or. He is both and. And again, that doesn't sit well with many of us, does it? We don't like to think of God that way. But according to God's timetable, there is both a time to love and a time to hate. You know, so many think of God as a God of love, and he is. But we don't consider the reality of his wrath. But the hatred of God is one of his perfections. It's right and good for God to oppose every wicked deed and to bring judgment upon evil. Amen? That's a good thing. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, we read of the seven things that the Lord hates. Jesus is the Prince of Peace and God has promised both peace and earth and war. But now is the time for war. Now is the time for you and I to put on the whole armor of God so that we can resist in this evil day. In Romans chapter 13 verse 4, we see that God has ministers who bear the sword as avengers, bringing wrath on those who practice evil. God ordains both times of laughter and times of weeping. In Psalm 126, verse 2, the psalmist rejoices as the Israelites returned from captivity. And they said, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue full of joyful shouting. And yet God ordains a time for weeping. He ordains a time for sorrow. Psalm 30, verse 5 states, weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. It's both hands. So, beloved, here's what we need to grasp. There is a time for everything. And everything God appoints works for our good and for his glory. And we need, we need to experience the both and from God if we are to understand the whole character of God and if we are to receive the fullness of his blessings. For example, the couplets that you look at that we see here in verses 1 through 3 talk about our time. It talks specifically about our physical lives. 
Birth is such a blessing. Seeing a child come into the world is a precious time. But Psalm 116.15 tells us that death is also precious. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. What believer here does not long for heaven? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. Listen, we all have appointed times to die. We enjoy the steady repetitions of the seasons, don't we? We plant at the proper time. We uproot at the proper time. We harvest what was planted. Cells that are infected or cells that break down are killed so that the body can heal. We're thankful for the killing of germs and disease given by God so that we also might have a time to heal. And that which is old is often torn down so that new things can be built up. In addition to our physical lives, couplets four and five talk about our emotional lives. Our emotional lives. You know, emotions are not bad things. Amen? Well, you can't be an expositor of the word and have any emotion. Baloney. Listen, if God's really moving the head, he better be moving the heart. Amen? And look what he says here. We've talked about the appropriate times to laugh and cry. Both are a necessary experience. Psalm 126.5 promises, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Listen, if you've never understood weeping and mourning, you will never understand joy. Amen? How would you know it? We mourn and we dance. There are certain times in life that call for great celebration and rejoicing. But there are other times in life that leave us in sadness and in grief. And what we need to see, beloved, is these are all part of the rhythms of God who makes all things beautiful in His time. Without times of mourning, we could never know the height of true joy. In sadness, we feel the Lord near us. How precious does he become when we read someday that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If we never knew sorrow, if we never knew pain, that verse would mean nothing to us. That's the fullness of the both and. Without experiencing cold, how could we ever appreciate warmth? And standing up here, I could really appreciate some cool right now. There are times to throw stones, times to gather stones, times in life we collect, times that we get rid of things. There are times to sell off, times to expand. There are times that we embrace, at other times we shun embracing. There is a time God has to show affection, and other times when it's to be avoided. There are joyful hellos as well as tearful goodbyes in life. We all understand the rhythm of life. And then we get to the couplets we find in verses 6 through 8. And here Solomon focuses on our spiritual lives, the time as it relates to our spiritual lives. We search for the things of God which satisfy the soul and we give up those earthly temptations and we count them as rubbish for the sake of gaining Christ. There are seasons when God gives us things which are a great use to us and there are times when we need to discard them because they become useless. There is a time to tear apart and sew together. 
You should know in biblical times, tearing apart was synonymous with grief over one's circumstances or the actions of other people. We understand that. We know that life brings us great disappointment and difficulty. Anybody not have difficulty in their life? We understand that. Yet there are times when problems are solved, when relationships are mended, when forgiveness is given and unity is restored. Amen. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. There are times we need to control our tongue and God instructs us when to speak and how to speak and what to speak. God also informs us when we should say nothing. We should never be silent when it comes to sharing the gospel or speaking out against injustice. And yet in Proverbs 17.28, we read that even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. There's times to be quiet. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Listen, we love the righteous things of God. We delight in the law of the Lord. Yet there are times of righteous indignation. We hate sin. We hate its effects. God convicts us to flee from evil, to cling to Him. And what could be better than the love of God which is poured out in our hearts? Finally, there is a time for war and a time for peace. There is tyranny and evil in the world that has to be put down. Governments often wage just wars. And as previously mentioned, spiritual warfare is being waged every single day in our lives. But we also experience at the same time the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Isn't it amazing that in the midst of this chaotic world, we as Christians have that peace that passes all understanding? It's both and, not either or. Even in the midst of turmoil, we have his peace which guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we see, beloved, that God has a time to every purpose and that God ordains both the positive and negative experiences in life so that we can know him more completely. All of it is ordained. And this keeps us humble before him. And it keeps us and reminds us that we need to be dependent on him in all areas of our life. Every second of every day, God is in your life. Amen? There are no missing pieces. Your lack of understanding does not give you an incomplete puzzle. It's the perspective we have on what we see. So this brings us to a third observation about our time under heaven. We've seen the poem manifest the doctrines of God's sovereignty and his predestination of human events. We see also that it maintains that God is not either or, but also and. And lastly, this poem mandates the importance of redeeming our time for Christ. It mandates the importance of redeeming our time for Christ. Without a doubt, the example of Jesus' ministry on earth is the greatest example of how to make the best use of our time. And the activities of this poem were directly lived out by Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And therefore, we can go a step further by connecting this poem very intimately with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The poem teaches us about the times and activities of men, it teaches us about the character of God. And lastly, don't miss this, it teaches us about the Son of God 
who shares in all the divine perfections. As the creator God, we know that Jesus is the Lord of time. He ordered creation. Now by his resurrection from the dead, he rules the universe with sovereign authority both over time and eternity. When we witness the work of Jesus in the Gospels, we see a Savior who always knew what time it was. There was a time for him to be born. We read, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. There was also a day appointed for him to die. We read in Romans 5, 6, that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. During his earthly ministry, Jesus knew the right time for everything. He used his disciples at the right time to replant the vineyard of the people of God. And as the Lord of the harvest, he knew the right time to uproot. He stated in Matthew 15, 13, that every plant my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Jesus knew when it was time to heal. He made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. Jesus knew the right time for every single emotion. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit when the disciples came back from their first mission trip. Luke 10, 21. Jesus knew when it was time to seek lost sheep, when it was time to refrain from embracing. And he refrained from embracing the scribes and the Pharisees and all of the self-righteous who rejected him. He knew when to speak as he did in the Sermon on the Mount. And he knew when to be silent as he suffered under Pilate, being led as a sheep to the slaughter. So we see, beloved, that from beginning to end, Jesus always had perfect timing. And he shows us how to live so as to avoid the vanity of life without God. Listen, this is a message of hope. Do you see that? This is a message of great hope. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, we need to view the times of our life like Jesus viewed his life. Amen? Amen? We're to see time as an opportunity to serve God. We're to redeem our lives in Christ. And and in light of this, I want to give you three practical ways, okay, to apply this poem to your life. How do we apply this? How do we turn this into a, a, a viable discipleship? Number one. First of all, wait for God's timing. Wait for God's timing. How many of you are impatient people? Oh, come on, I'll raise your hand. You're all impatient. Some of you are already halfway through lunch in your mind. Listen, we need to wait for God's timing. If God is sovereign over time, then we should trust that God knows the right time for everything in your life. You see, our real problem, beloved, doesn't lie in the fact that time doesn't stand still. The ultimate problem is that we only see a fraction of the movement of time and we try to make sense of our little part of time without considering the whole. I lost my job today! Now, I'm not minimizing these things. I stubbed my toe today! We focus on that little piece inside of us and we forget about the totality of what God 
is doing. We focus on our tiny little part, and then we often see this as, as the tyranny of God, the punishment of God, the, the fact that God's forgotten us. Listen, God is in that. God is in your sprained ankle, amen? I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's all how we look at it. It's all perspective. You can look at this as, oh my goodness, I'm in a terrible circumstance. Or you can look at this and say, this is part of the rhythm of life. This is the both and. And God orchestrated this because he understands that I need both. There are many things beyond our control. We don't control the time of our birth, the time of our death. We don't control times of war or peace. But there are other things we control. To an extent, planting, building up, speaking up, these are things that we do. And since most of us would prefer to manage our own agenda, we're often impatient or out of sync with God's timing. How many of you had planned to go one way and God took you another way? How many of you has that happened to today? Right? We understand this. We want our own agendas. We're impatient. So, beloved, listen. Do not get ahead of time. Do not get ahead of God and His time. Don't let the circumstances of your life throw you off the horse. Wait upon the Lord. When you find yourselves in times of uncertainty or worry or stress or despair, wait upon the Lord and He will renew your strength. Amen? We could echo the wisdom of David who said in Psalm 31, 14 and 15, I trust in you, O Lord, my times are in your hand. But I don't want to stop here because there's another thing to look at when it comes to practical application. I want you to understand that all of your time, everything that happens in your life is a gift from God. I remember talking to a professing believer and he was lamenting about things that were going wrong and I tried to encourage him and I said, well, you know, God is good all the time. You know, God is a gift. And he looked at me with a snarl. What? Are you telling me that my sorry pilgrimage here is a gift of God? Do you understand what my life looks like? I do the same old thing every day, the same dull routine, the same headaches, the same tedious job. I go over and over and over again, and you're telling me that this is all a gift of God? Yes! What's the difference? Perspective. There are many who see their lives as just random, that I'm just going through the motions and I'm just in this all by myself. But those who see it as a gift from God understand that God has not abandoned them and that everything in their life is to His glory. And that's why Paul said, whether we eat monotonous, whether we drink monotonous, do all to the glory of God. Right? Because everything in life is to the glory of God. And this changes our whole perspective. So i got to walk a little bit, okay? Whew. All right, so let me tell you a story. You up for a story? I'm not calling kids up this week. When I had my knee surgery, and I'm sitting in my chair looking at my 25 staples holding my knee shut, and I watch and I look in my driveway, and who pulls up but the physical therapist? He was a medieval torturer. I hated the guy. And he walks into my house and he says, what a glorious day. And I'm like, what? 
What do you mean a glorious day? I'm sitting here in pain and you're about to torture me and you're telling me it's a glorious day. I was upset. And he said, come on, we need to start exercising. So I started to exercise and, and I'm bending my knee and he says, oh, you know, can you get it a little farther? I said, no. Can you get it a little farther? No. Can you get it a little more bent? No. So he grabs my knees and says, well, let's just take a look. He says, you know, I'm only asking for two degrees. No. Wham! So he hyperextends my knee. And I saw stars in the middle of the day. I wanted to kill this guy. If I'd have had a baseball bat, he would never have made it to his next patient. I was aggravated. And then he goes out and he says, well, have a blessed day. And I'm writhing in pain. Now, it would be very easy to say, okay, God, you took a vacation for this last half hour. But you know, when he left, beloved, I thought, it is a glorious day. And God ordained this. Because let me tell you, I appreciate now having a good knee in a way I never would have if I hadn't gone through the pain. And I thought, God gave me the ability to go to a doctor to fix this. God gave me the ability to get rid of the pain. Whatever God put me through, it was for his glory. It's all perspective. And I realized that, you know what, that physical therapist was right. It is a glorious day. Now, I never thanked him for it. I'm working on it. But, beloved, I, let me just say this over and over. It's a matter of perspective. It's the both and. You need those difficulties to appreciate the good. Wait on God's timetable. Secondly, live your whole life knowing there is a time for you to die. And I'm not trying to be morbid here. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So I'm asking, will you be ready when your time comes? The most important time for you to take care of now is the time when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? If you're here and you don't know Christ, if you're here and you don't understand what would happen to you if you were to die today, I plead with you, I beg you, I beg you, do not leave here without talking to one of us. Nothing's more important in the time of your life than to understand your eternal destiny. Will you be ready when your time comes? During the Civil War, a Confederate soldier was mortally wounded and trembling, he said, I did not mean to be killed today. That's a wake-up call for us. Remember, it profits us nothing to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Have you trusted Christ? 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Number three, make good use of whatever time you have. Time is precious, and you only have a finite amount of time. So use your time on earth to store up treasures in heaven to bring glory to God. Redeem your time through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. There are times in your life to start something, to stop something to plant, to build, to give birth. There are proper emotional responses in life. Learn how to live biblically here. Redeeming the time also requires wisdom in the use of our possessions, what we keep, what we give away, how we use what we have. If there is a time for every matter under heaven, then redeeming the time requires wise decision-making. But see, beloved, your life is part of God's plan. He has made you. He has ordered all the circumstances of your life to bring his plan to completion. 
But what hope we have in Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, when we have that perspective, it changes everything. It brings humility. We're amazed at God's intercession in our life. It brings security because we rest in the hope and promises of God through all of the rhythms of life, positive and negative. So let's learn from this poem. Listen, time presents no frustration to God. He knows all the activities, events, and moods that occur. He will accomplish His will in unknown ways to us through the passage of time. Nothing happens that takes him by surprise. And listen, this should be a liberating truth for us. We will never fully understand all of God's ways or what he's doing, but we live under a God who made it all, who set it up for his own glory, and who owns all the time of our life. And the acknowledgement of God's ownership of our time helps us to live with confidence that nothing can come upon us apart from what God has ordained. So remember this poem that it magnifies the doctrines of God's sovereignty and predestination, that it maintains that God is not either or, but both and and, and also how it mandates the importance of redeeming our time for Christ. Listen, I realize that God's time for everything is not usually our time. If we were given the right to choose, we would never choose any unpleasantness in life, but that would ruin us. God knows the people who are protected from everything will never know the fullness of God's character, nor will they ever mature and grow into the likeness of Christ. And that is God's aim for us. That when the difficulties and negatives come, remember that God is sovereignly in control of your life. He has a purpose for all he allows. And that this is not fatalism. It doesn't rob us of our freedom and it doesn't rob us of our responsibility. It's the wise providence of a loving heavenly father who does all things well and who promises to make everything work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. So we see that God does indeed make all things beautiful in his time. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your divine support as we journey through this life. As those who are called by you, we realize you are our creator, our sustainer, Father, you are the very author of our salvation. And Lord, in light of that, we pray that you would give us the right perspective over all the rhythms and circumstances of life, that we might see you not as a burden maker, but as a burden taker. Help us, Lord, we pray, to see that we're not really in charge of anything, but help us to see this, Lord, as a blessing and not a curse. We know that you have ordained all that comes upon us and you will not fail to lead us into your everlasting kingdom, which is our true inheritance and heavenly home. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, we see this life not as a long journey of random circumstances, but as life that is full of meaning and purpose. And therefore, help us, we pray, to see all the difficulties and duties of life as delight, so that in all circumstances, we can rejoice, knowing that you will indeed make everything beautiful in its time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.